Yeah, Vaughn? Silverchair tonight here at the Paradise. Hello. What's going on? Now, you guys have to explain something there because a lot of people are confused about Hanson. They've heard members from Quicksand and Helmet. You guys have to. Uh, a beat. You used to be in Helmet. Yeah. What, what, now, what, what happened with that? Was there any bad blood or, or what, what, what happened with the Helmet deal? I really want to say is I'm friends with Henry. So, are you from Australia? Yeah. So, do you know the Silverchair kids? We grew up together. Wait a minute. I thought they were like 12. Yeah, I know, but they picked on me when they were kids. <laughs> Okay, so wait, who's younger here? What's this old fart doing hanging around the sandbox? <laughs> I am so excited for this conversation. This is one yeah. that you and I have been hoping for on the podcast for a long time. It's it you very rarely do you get a chance to like learn a lot about something that you've loved dearly for about 25 years. And Today's going to give us that opportunity, an album that's very, very special to us. So I'm excited to hear. Are you excited? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, and, you know, we we cover some that are expected. We cover some that are well-known, but the most fun ones are where we can uh, either reintroduce after a while or or maybe for some for the first time introduce what we deem a classic and uh, can't wait to talk about it with one of the gents himself. This is awesome. Yeah, it's really, really cool. We, we want to uh, go ahead and bring in guitarist Peter Benghidi. Peter, joining us from literally across the world. First of all, thank you for joining us. And the chance thank to you. talk about this album that, like I said, is very special to us. This album for T and I have always been, it's always been kind of this little musical secret that we can let people in on. And I think we bat a thousand for when we tell people, Hey, there's this record from 97 that you have to hear. And people almost 100% of the time respond back and say, thank you for telling me about this. We love it. Um, it's, it's definitely a top 25 album for me T I got to imagine it's high on your list as well. So we can't wait to talk about it. Um, are you in Brisbane, Australia? Yeah. Yeah. I was born in Brisbane and, um, look, when I, when I was a kid in Australia, um, you had, two choices really one would be to play in a cover band and the other one was to get out so um i was playing my high school band we were doing deep purple and uh status quo covers and then one day i heard the sex pistols over a friend's place and um i think it was holidays in the sun and at that point i decided i was going to drop out of school run away from home become a rock star which is a <laughs> Really, I was sixteen. Stupid, stupid kid. So the day I the day I turned sixteen, I ran away, lived in our rehearsal room in the city for a while, and eventually made my way down to Sydney. Played in some bands down there. Then I, I went to Melbourne, worked for Monash Records down there, um, just trying to skill up so I could get overseas because everyone migrated, everyone left Australia, and I eventually uh, ended up in New York. And after probably taking about a year there to find my feet, my then wife, Renee Cookero, introduced me to Paige Hamilton. And we started a band called Helmet. So 
You know, that, that was just, that, that was probably the epitome, I think, at that time of an independent band. Uh, there were no, you know, delusions about chart success or mainstream success. If we can play uh, to 200 people in New York, maybe 50 people out of, out of state, that was great. It was fantastic for us. Um, anyway, but, you know, Nirvana, thanks to Nirvana, really, the whole world changed. We were one of the first bands that were signed uh, in the wake of their success. So we did very well. Um, but, the, you know, there were problems within that band that led to us parting ways. Um, I'd say that in hindsight, I'm very, very glad that I did uh, move on when mm -hmm. I did. So, and that was um, um, right. In, was that right after in the meantime? Yeah, we'd finished touring meantime. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but I think by that point, we were certified gold. We'd sold close to a million records worldwide. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was time to come back and record a third album. And the main tension within the, the band was about publishing, songwriting. Uh, um, the band were paying all the bills. So Henry, John, and I, and Paige equally, we're paying for all the uh, the recording for videos. We're paying for our promotions, per diems, crew, tour, <coughs> tour support, recording, um, and then there was a separate income stream, which is publishing. So the songwriter takes mm -hmm. that income, which is not recoupable against band expenditure. So um, when we were looking to do a third record. I'd gone to, after some talks in, inside the band, I'd gone to our manager who was also Paige's publisher and said that for the next record, we'd all like to contribute and we would like our contributions recognised. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that went over like a lead balloon. So <laughs> so the, the relationship between Paige and I deteriorated from that point on. Had you contributed um, to some composition on meantime and it, but Paige was getting all of the um No 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 Paige was a Paige was a songwriter. Okay. Okay. So he would you know, I neither Henry John is that the right word? Neither. Uh neither Henry John nor I would claim that we had a uh, a stake in the songwriting. Okay. But when we were rehearsing for Meantime, Henry, John, and I had a rehearsal, and, and John said, look, um, what are you going to do if Paige comes in with another song that goes da-da-da-da-da-da? I said, well, I guess we'll we'll try and write something. Uh, we'll write something, we'll work as a group, and we'll have our contributions acknowledged. Uh, he said, oh, yeah. We all agreed that was a good idea. I took it, as I said, to our manager and publisher. Um, it definitely did not go over well. So... Um, It'll be fun to talk about kind of how that transition, the disillusion of your role in Helmet came to lead to this great lineup of Handsome, a lineup that to me is even more impressive now in 2022 as it was in, in 1996. So we will for sure get to that. Did you live anywhere else besides New York when you were in the States or, or was that your, your home base? Um, just New York. Okay. Um, because you're in Detroit, right? We're in yeah, we Detroit are. area. Yeah. You, yeah. But you can say what you want. Fantastic. <laughs> I actually lived, I lived in New York city though, from uh, actually we probably overlapped. I was there from 2002 to 2007. Okay. So. Yeah, I left uh, 2000, beginning of 2002. So oh, okay. might've seen you, might've seen you at the airport. 
That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Although you I know, drove a U, I drove a U-Haul there, which was a whole other experience. I think I saw, I think I, I think I saw you from yeah. <laughs> driving through the state of Pennsylvania, which took about five days to get through, going fifty miles an hour. Yeah. When I lived in Sydney, there was a Detroit scene, and I think that was spearheaded by a band called Radio Birdman. Uh, there's a guy called Dennis Tech who came from Ann Arbor. Have you have you ever heard of them? Definitely heard of Dennis Tech. Okay, so Dennis Tech was. He and Rob Younger were responsible for creating this Detroit scene in inner city Sydney where all these people wore cut-off denim jackets and, you know, Radio Birdman um, patches and all acted like they were in the Stooges. And, you know, basically there were a bunch of Australian private schoolboys running around in reflector shades <laughs> pretending to be really fucking tough. So I think we made fun of that scene when we were there. But when I came to America and we toured with the Melvins and we played our first show with them, it was uh, at Club Heidelberg in Ann Arbor. The Heidelberg? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've played there. We sure have. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It's still there. Yeah. yeah it's but, a cool place. And we got to meet people from Detroit. And I think they're my favorite people in America. Hmm. So my girlfriend in New York finished up being from Detroit. My wife was from Boston. Uh, after we divorced, my girlfriend was uh, a Detroiter. Just absolutely loved Detroit, and it was fantastic because there was no one running around with a, with a patch on, with a cut-off denim jacket, pretending to be Ron Ashton. It's fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely um, a little more. I mean, there's definitely a scene there, but it's a little bit more genuine and raw and stripped down. I mean, you know, people aren't people aren't trying to put it on. It's it's almost like uh, I always felt it to be something that was very authentic. You know, whereas to your point, you get in some of these other areas and everyone's just kind of chasing the the trend in a way or trying to fit into some mold. De Detroiters always seem to march to their own beat, whether it was hip or not, you know. Well, well thanks for acknowledging our, our, our city. That's very cool. Yeah. That's, yeah. We don't get a lot of love uh, unless you're talking about like, you know, Kid Rock and stuff. So, yeah, we Excellent. Detroit was my favorite city in America. Excellent. Oh, from New York. We'll take it. I mean, we'll take it. Love hearing that. Anywhere I went, you know, I, anywhere I went was probably just like it was second rate compared to New York. San Francisco was pretty good, but otherwise, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there, there's some great venues in New York City and all that. Um, but, you know, St. Andrew's Hall and Harpo's mm -hmm. and really just places with a lot of character. And, and we got to you know, go see some really good shows at a young age. It's a big reason why we do what we're doing right now as we speak and have that appreciation is because we were able to, you know, not just go to summer shows at palladiums and those type of things that a lot of others do. We were able to, even in the heart of the winter, drive out to a half hour to downtown Detroit and find a place to park and walk into St. Andrews, even if you weren't 21 and, you know, see a great show. It was Big deal for us. The other thing that uh, played a large role in our development of a deep love for the Handsome album is record stores. And we will get to that when we talk about the Wonder yeah. Stories. But T, first, let's take the show round and round. And Peter's going to join us. We're going to find out what Peter has been listening to lately. So let's take our very special guest episode here round and round. All right. All right, three albums that you have been listening to. T, it's been a while since we were together here, so I'm looking forward to hearing. Is it new? Is it old? T, what's around and around for you? Well, the, 
there's actually I've gone a little bonkers here lately with new releases. It's been a pretty good wave for the last you know month or so. Uh, highlighted by one of my favorite bands of the last couple of years, which is a band out of the UK I've talked about before called Everything Everything. They're sort of prog pop, I would say. Um, this is a little bit more poppy. As, as we've talked about with every band now, they started off being fairly simple, very guitar driven, but complex and creative. And now they're using a lot of electronics and electronic drums and a term that Nubs coined called festival rock sounding, which I don't love because this band found a way through instrumentation to just sound really unique. Um, so their album Raw Data Feel just came out a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's, it's good. I love the band, but it's definitely in more of an electronica direction and God, every band that you start to love within the last five years, it just seems like after their first couple albums, they move more and more in that direction. I don't know if it's commercial. I don't know if it's just the the DIY factor just makes things easier or everything's got to be danceable. You know, that's what it is. these days. Yeah. And these guys, they, they use a lot of off time. They use a lot of crazy time signatures and those things. And this one's just like really almost like more straightforward than you'd like out of those guys, but you know, still good to get a new release uh, out of those guys for sure. So everything, everything they're worth checking out. I found this, uh, this weird, I don't even know where I came across this, but there's a reissue from, you know, my girl, Melissa Manchester, right. That we've talked about. Well, of course there's this double, double live. album. almost reminds me of the Barry Manilow live. album called live 77. And it's like very polished and very, you know, all this, but you know, back, back before she started doing love ballads in the, in the eighties, this chick kind of rocked, you know? So live 77, uh, by, uh, the great Melissa Manchester, I've been mean, getting into good stuff there. And then of course, uh, the arcade fire album, we, which is their new release. And I, you know, man, I just, I just have a soft spot for these guys. I just love that band. I, I've, I've kind of, everything they've put out has been a little bit different and they've also gone in a little bit more of a produced electronica direction, but they're still authentic. They still pull it off. And I don't know, man, I just like those guys. I, <laughs> I know, I know for a while they were kind of the hip trendy thing to like, but I, I really feel like they have the talent and the appeal and the variety. Cause you know, you get a little bit of everything on all their records. And I think Wee's pretty good. I think they once again put out something that's pretty quality. So that's what's round and round for me. How about you, Nub? Well, let's go to Peter first. Uh, Peter, what are three albums that you've been uh, digging of late? Okay. Uh, because I teach guitar, I don't get to listen to music for fun anymore. So I'm probably on a steady diet of involuntarily of Metallica and Ed Sheeran. But if I <laughs> want to go for a drive and just cleanse the palate a bit, I start with Led Zeppelin. Sure. How the West was one. Oh, it's a great live, live recording. Yeah. yeah. Great recording. Yes, that's for me, that's just two hours of meditation. Absolutely. <laughs> the version of Immigrant Song that opens that is blistering. It's so good. I love it. Takes me to a happy place. Yes. Um Oh, we I'm know that out one. For a nice, if I'm out for a nice walk with the dogs, my bloody Valentine, Loveless. We did an episode about that record, actually. We sure did. Really? Mm-hmm. 
And um, I think this is one of the, the records that I, I like most in the 90s. I don't know if we're influenced by it, but I still listen to this regularly. Oh, Afghan Wigs, yes. Gentlemen, yeah. They have a new record coming out in a couple months. Okay, I'll definitely go and get it. Yeah, that's this a great one, band. Um, from beginning to end, absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah. Great pick. It takes you, it takes you somewhere. I'm not surprised, uh, but those are three pretty solid picks. <laughs> well, well done. <laughs> really solid. Really solid. Thanks, Peter, for sharing those four. For my round and round, starting with a band that I continue to sort of try and carry the flag for here uh, on Two Twins in an album, that is the band Big Wreck, a band everyone should know. It's a lot like Handsome. People need to go find out about this band led by Ian Thornley. Their new EP is called 7.1. It's got a, just an amazing lead single called Bombs Away on it. Big Wreck is just one of those bands that has somehow flown under the radar for 20 plus years. And I just sort of recently discovered them and just continue to love pretty much everything they do. So Big Wreck 7.1. Second is a, a new album from a band that I really love out of the, the hardcore scene, and that is Cave In. Again, another not a new band, but a new record. And, and uh, they lost one of their band members a few years ago. Their bass player died. So they've made a replacement in personnel. They put out this brand new album on Relapse Records, which is awesome because I love that label called Heavy Pendulum. Really, really good stuff. Lastly, certainly in tribute, um, you know, as a Peter, I'm a big prog guy and uh, we, we lost Alan White from Yes this past week. So I've been listening a little bit to his solo album, Ramshackled. It's the only solo album he ever did uh, back when all the members of Yes did solo albums in 1975, 76. And uh, it's a sad thing for Yes fans. He was in the band for 50 years almost. You got your shirt on there too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I do. Full, I do. full tribute. Yeah. Full tribute. You know, we cover it all the time. We're starting to watch so many of our heroes uh, leave the world. And it's a sad thing. But, uh, you know, at least their music is left behind and we could celebrate it. So definitely RIP Alan White. And uh, I know that's been a hard thing for Yes fans this week. But it's cool that we can listen to things like Ramshackled and remember his memory. So we've already been able to dive in a little bit to some of the background of the band and album Handsome. So let's continue that see as we get into the nerdy deets. Thunder cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some nerdy deets? All right, nerdy deets. So here we go. Handsome was released February 4th, 1997. Of course, the self-titled album from the band Handsome. Produced by Terry Date. Hopefully we get to talk a lot about that, Peter, because I it just seems like he had a, a huge yeah, impact absolutely. on the sound and style of this record. Um, the background of the band, you know, Peter, you founded the band essentially as you came out of your time with Helmet. It's interesting because I remember even as a young listener hearing that this whole thing was sort of born out of the Brooklyn hardcore scene. I kept thinking, you know, this album really doesn't sound like a hardcore album it's so melodic and the songwriting is is in some ways so beautiful even though it's really heavy but it, this, the 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 band certainly came out of that scene i know that what sold the album to me was the fact that many of you were ex members of bands that that i really loved the personnel from the album is of course peter mangidi who joins us tonight tom capone on guitars he of course was in quicksand uh, Eddie Nappy on bass and Pete Hines i put together through watching some of your vintage press peter that you were Pete and the drummer was, or you were Peter and the drummer was Pete. That's how you guys kept yeah. it organized. And Jeremy Chatelain. Of course. From, uh, from, yes. Uh, Ice, Ice Spoon, I think he played with. Um, okay. 
Yeah, so how did this whole thing come together, Peter? How did this happen? Yeah, look, it, it, it didn't come together as a result of any Brooklyn hardcore scene. So it, the, the band happened as a an outgrowth, if you like, of just a friendship group. I was hanging out with a, a friend, Lisa, in Tompkins Square Park after the helmet thing happened. I was kind of bummed out. And this guy came up to me and he said, hey, uh, so you Peter Mangaday? I said, yeah, yep, I am. He said, oh, my name's Eddie. Uh, I play bass. Like, it'd be really cool if we if we played together. I said, okay, well, um, yeah, let's get together. So we swapped details. And um, I had this weird experience. He lived over on uh, in Green, well, Williamsburg, further out in Williamsburg in the Italian section. He was pretty, pretty much firmly mafia. We came from a mafia family. So Eddie and I started playing together. Uh, and then I was walking down St. Mark's one afternoon and I bumped into Tom Capone who was still playing with Quicksand and they'd toured with Helmet. They'd supported us in the past. I told him what, what I was doing, what Eddie and I were doing. He said, oh, yeah, you know, Pete Hines, my friend Pete Hines is looking for a band. He's in Teachers College in Boston at the moment, but, um, yeah, I think he'd be up for it. Next time Pete was down for the weekend, we got together, we played. Um, it was great. Uh, we at that time had another guitar player, Mark Stanley, who was probably one of my favourite New York guitar players. He was dissonant, he was melodic, he was a great writer. Um, so Mark came and played with us for a while. Um, but there were some tensions within the band in that we wanted someone who was a dedicated frontman uh, out front of the band. Mark wasn't too happy with that. We auditioned about, or spoke to about 200 singers in New York. And, I mean, even though it's a really big place, a lot of people go there. They don't all have talent. I'm sorry. A lot of people are deluded. <laughs> um, I'm into Nick Cave, you know, I'm into uh, Elvis, Vegas era Elvis. I'm, I'm into Tom Waits. I sing like those guys. So that's great. Okay, can you send me a, a demo or something, a sample of what you've done? So no, man, I just like to do it. You know, I really like to just be there and do it so you can see the whole package. So, all right, okay. We lined up a rehearsal uh, at this place out in Long Island run by a bikey. We, we, we all trekked out there. It was fucking freezing. We get to the basement. We set up. Now we all plug in. We start playing. This guy sticks the microphone in his uh, down his gob, drops to the floor and drags his ass around the floor like a dog with worms, <laughs> howling. <laughs> and Heinz, you know, Heinz just lost it. Heinz cracked up. He ran to the toilet. He locked himself in there for half an hour. And Eddie and I had to just fucking stand there with this guy. Um, <laughs> That's funny. He said, what do, what do you think? What do you think? <sighs> I said, oh. We just couldn't. It was great. It was great. We just couldn't get, wait to get out of there. So then, you know, Pete Hines uh, knew Jeremy through mutual friends. So we sat down uh, we, we sat down at a, a diner out at Park Slope one afternoon and I explained to Jeremy the way I thought, well, the way the band was going to work and that was that everyone was going to have input uh, and that everyone's input was going to be recognised both publicly and financially. So we made sure that everyone was an equal partner, uh, unlike, you know, previous bands. That was the idea that everyone was going to contribute. Um, and that, that's the way it worked. Mike's wife, Renee Cookero, um, who was, again, very instrumental in supporting and, and getting Helmet up and running, 
Now she introduced me to Paige. She paid for the ad that found John, the ad in the Village Voice. Um, she was working for Jive Records at the time. So for a while she acted as our interim manager. So she was booking shows for us and getting, um, taking care of the guest list, making sure all the A&R people were on board. When we did sign and Renee did a fantastic job supporting us, uh, we went through a bidding war that was the same as, um, same as Helmets, but less hyped. So, um, Sony offered us $1.2 million. There were clauses in the contract that could get them out. So we said, yeah, fine. That'll be good. We did it. I don't, you know, sorry. I should, I should feel guilty about taking the money. Nah. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Well, the deal was we, we spent it all very quickly. So for, for once, you know, we had gear budgets. I bought some gear. I bought some, some preamps and uh, a guitar maybe. I think I bought one guitar. Eddie bought so much bass gear. It was ridiculous. Just, you know, I said, what, what do you need all this stuff for? He said, oh, I'll be able to sell it when we break up. Pete Hines bought a beautiful <laughs> drum kit. So he was at the Long Island drums, you know, the drum center all the time. <laughs> yeah, right. Singer always gets the easy gig, you know. <laughs> this, is not, this is not fair. <laughs> you know, so we, uh, we signed as a four-piece. You know, we've been recording, we've been playing, um, you know, doing regional shows as a four-piece. We signed with Epic. Then Tom Capone left Quicksand, uh, but they broke up. So we said, well, why don't you come play with us? We just bumped into him on the street again. What are you doing? Oh, we broke up. Come play with us. In that sense, looking back at it, it was pretty, pretty good. Really organic, right? I mean, you're right. It doesn't, to your point, it has more to do with synergy of a bunch of people maybe looking for an opportunity to join a band like this, you know, and that's, I think that's how a lot of the best groups develop. I, I did always notice that the songwriting credit was always all, all songs written by handsome. And that always stood out to me because I, I, you know, even a younger me put together that maybe the page, Am all songs by page Hamilton thing was part of the reason why the helmet thing didn't work out. And maybe that directly led to really what feels like a super collaborative spirit with this album, you know, all, all you guys working together, all your voices heard just to wrap up the nerdy deets once again. Uh, so it was released on Sony. It has since released, uh, it has since received some reissue treatment. I know I have the vinyl reissue of it, which has just been so great to have this on vinyl, which was released in collaboration with SRC vinyl, but all the original CDs and, and original kind of releases of this was on Epic Records. It was recorded at Bad Animals Studio, a very famous studio in Seattle, Washington. Um, so that room must have had you know something to do with at least the atmosphere of the recording. And Terry Date's presence must have been something that was really good for this band. If you look at the records that he did before you guys, what a perfect fit that Terry Date would work with you on this album. Well, what a Michael Goldstone from Epics doing? He was our A and R guy, and he chose Terry Date. That was a great. It was a great choice. Um, the room was fantastic. He had a huge, huge drum room. So Eddie and Pete tracked the bass and drums live. I, you know, Pete probably took a couple of takes to do each track. Eddie just punched in a few mistakes afterwards. Um, it was a huge desk. I think it was a 128 channel SSL desk. We had two 48 tracks chained together. The good thing about Terry was that unlike Helmet, so when we did Meantime, we were still very budget budget conscious. We thought maybe 
we'd sell 50, 60,000 records. So we wanted to keep our recording costs down. We recorded with Wharton Tears at Fun City Studios in the East 20s in the basement. Um, I did my guitar tracks there in about two hours. So there were some mistakes in there that I, I didn't have the chance to go back and fix. But w meantime, I think we recorded the whole thing in seven to 10 days or so in a basement. So the first thing that we did when we went to Terry's was, you know, he went through all our gear and all our amps and found out, you know, most of my marshals weren't cutting it. So we found a way around it. Um, how nerdy do you want to get here? Quite nerdy. Okay. Bradshaw, <laughs> SE3 preamp through a TC Electronics parametric EQ with a pretty strong boost, a couple of dB boost into a VHT classic power amp into a 320 watt bottom uh, Marshall cabinet, 1960B. And that was it. That's all we needed. A couple of mics on that. Sounded fantastic. Yep. He, he said, you know, we took maybe a day to get a guitar sound. He said, I've never been accused of getting a bad guitar sound. I'm not going to get one now. All right. Well, uh, before we get into track by track, see, I would definitely want to hear your handsome story. I think ours are probably sort of similar in how we discovered the band in the album, but uh, let's do it in the wonder stories. So let's dig the wonder stories. Does a record store in Plymouth, Michigan have anything to do with your discovery of Handsome? <laughs> there are kind of two um, two real discoveries that stand out for me, and I'm sure there are more than that. But you know, one of the cool things about the record store experience and all these things that you know, I sound like an old geezer, but that you know, the kids these days uh, just aren't getting that same experiences you know, making a discovery. And, you know, oftentimes you kind of went and you knew what you were looking for. And oftentimes you heard something on the radio or saw something on MTV, but then there were times where you're just in, and we spent an obnoxious amount of time at the repeat the beat in Plymouth, Michigan, you know? Uh, but there were times where you would go and you had 15 bucks in your pocket and you were kind of uh, saying, you know, if I see something that looks cool or looks interesting, I'm just going to take a chance on it. And there were some busts, but there were some epic successes in this way. And the handsome record was, was one of them for me. All I saw was, and I think it was a hype sticker on the CD box that basically said, you know, members of helmet and quicksand. And that was enough for me. It was kind of like, okay, I'm not really sure how this can be bad. I'd heard of jets to Brazil, but hadn't, you know, really dug into their stuff at that time as much, but it was sort of like, how can this be, how can this be bad? This is definitely worth a flyer. And the cover art was cool. And the simplicity of the uh, band name and the self-titled sort of aspect of it. And I love that just gray and black, you know, simple approach to it. Cause you know, this was at a time where those things could even put you over the edge on buying something. So it was like, I hadn't heard any songs. I hadn't heard anything. It was like, let's go. And God, you know, there are only a few times where you do that and you just are like actually, you know, legitimately kind of blown away for being sort of this abrasive rock drop D, you know, kind of thing, which a little bit of that came from, you know, your time with Helmet. It, it was so melodic and so layered and obviously produced extremely well. 
And it's just one of those records that, you know, you put it in as this is in my car, you know, is where you always listen to something for the first time. And, and I just remember going to nubs and going to anyone who would listen to me for 10 seconds and saying, you have to get this record. Like this is, this is something really cool and special. Never got to see you guys live. Never really, you guys were always a little mysterious and under the radar in terms of really getting out there. And maybe we missed it too. We were 17 years old. So, you know, it could have very well been that you came through once or twice, but weren't able to um, experience it. But one of the things that's extremely cool now, and actually Nubs mentioned this to me while, while we were getting ready for the episode, that there's some great clips on YouTube of, of full shows. And, and um, one of them is with when you guys were touring with Silverchair. And, you know, and it's, that, that's one of the beauties of uh, as annoying as a lot of this sort of digital social media uh, archival website type stuff is. Boy, is it awesome to be able to at least go see one of you guys' shows. It was one of those records you just, I, I became so excited to tell people about. And what's amazing is that even today, um, that's the same. You know, there, there are a lot of records where back in, the, in that time and maybe for a few years after, you got really excited about introducing to people. But this is a unique one where 25 years later, it's still exciting to, to tell people about because there's still way too many people, more than there should be, that haven't heard this or heard of this. And uh, you get the same reaction every time. I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it gets on your nerves, Peter, that this thing was underappreciated based on how good it was. But, you know, regardless, it's, it's just so much fun to introduce people to this and you know exactly what their reaction is going to be. It's like, wow, that's a really, that's a really amazing album that just holds up extremely well too. So, so yeah, that was, it was a flyer and it became something that I became very proud to introduce people to and still am to this day. Yeah. It, it very, you know, my wonder story has a lot to do with yours. I have to thank my twin brother for being the first to buy it. We've both combined since bought this album in various forms, probably six more times, but you were <laughs> right. the first to actually pick it up. And it was two words, helmet and quicksand were the two kind of hooks. It was like, okay, th this really must be, be something that we want to check out. But I was um, so impressed by just the sonic richness of the production. I was so impressed by the melodic aspect of the songwriting. There was so much emotion in this album. We'll talk about the track by track, but Peter, one thing I want to share with you is uh, I'm a drummer. This is still my drum workout to play songs one through seven. On the really? handsome album. Yep. It, because it's a perfect, perfect drummer's album. The energy is there. You always feel like you got a good workout playing the first seven songs on this album. And I, I got to give it up to Pete. I mean, he really, the performances on this album, top to bottom, are incredible from Jeremy to, to everybody. But I've been lucky to play with some really, really good drummers. So Bruce Anton in Brisbane, David Rowley uh, in Sydney, John Stanier, New York, and Pete Hines. They make you play better. Well, it'll be fun to drop the needle and uh, go track by track on this very special album. And so, T, uh, I think it's time to drop that needle. What do you think? Let's do it. To your point, T, you listen to this in your car right after leaving the record store. You pop it in, you hit play. And the first thing you hear is that just magical opening riff, Two Needles.
just hits you right in the face. But like I said, still very melodic. Peter, talk about needles. Uh, I think this is the first thing that Eddie and I did when we met. Uh, first day we got together, was, you know, I said, what do you got? Show us what you got. He's, oh, I've got this. We have one riff. Eddie had one riff. And I think it was... Uh, So we started with that, um, and I was thinking probably a little bit, uh, like a little bit Jesus Lizard, maybe a, a little, this is pre-Afghan week, so I was probably thinking Jesus Lizard. So we started, we turned it, we just added a flat five to, to the riff. Uh, um, nice. So we, we got to that point. Jeremy wrote a nice, a great melody over the top of it. Did Jeremy do all the vocal melodies on the record? Was that all him? All him. Yeah. All the lyrics. So he and Heinz were flatmates and Heinz was com- constantly complaining about it. He says, kid, it's so fucking depressing. You're fucking going to slip my fucking wrists. Just <laughs> <laughs> I can't listen to this. I can't listen to this anymore. <laughs> That, you know, I will say from a 17-year-old perspective, one of the cool things about this album was musically it was it was really warm and and it, you know, we've used the word melodic a lot, but it, it touched a lot of different just areas of great rock music. But lyrically, and T and I are not big lyric guys, but there was something about the lyrics of this album that connected with a 17-year-old kid who's trying to figure out the world and who does that through rock music. So I I will give Jeremy a lot of credit. There are some lyrical moments on this album that really stand out. For sure. Pretty sure he was a big Morrissey fan. Yeah, I could see that. The sadness is there. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, people expected a different type of vocalist too. So double looking for your um, Lane Staley or your uh, Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah, more um, gruff kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he definitely, he was an individual. And that the use of that vocal effect, which is prominent throughout most of the album, I think maybe even the whole thing, except for the final track, was that a Terry date call? Was that a sound that you guys or Jeremy himself liked in terms of that sort of filtered, distorted ish kind of sound? That was Terry. Yeah. 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 It's a cool, it's a cool um, and unique effect at the time. And and it's consistent throughout the album. It wasn't, it wasn't gimmicky. It was kind of like, part of the overall package you know yeah no it was definitely terry because i remember while jeremy was doing his vocals he was way off in a distant room we could see him across the main room in a vocal room um i was just sitting there watching him do it and pete hines if he was still in seattle at that point would have been playing doom (laughs) (laughs) yeah unfortunately they they introduced us to the playstation (laughs) right and bad animals. So, you know, we, we had shared apartments and it's three, four in the morning. All you'd hear is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yep, it never it stops. It, it was that stop. time. Hey, by the way, while it we're never stop- stops, yeah. <laughs> it never stops. There you go. By, by the way, do you, do you keep in touch with any of the guys still? Yeah. I just, I, um, I just uh, had a little bit of a, a chat with Pete Hines, Jeremy and I sometimes, and I get one word, little hellos from Eddie Nappy. Uh, I'm not sure what Tom Capone is or what he's doing mm. these days. Yeah. But also, you know, also I stay in touch with Henry from Helmet and I stay in touch with John from Helmet too. It's nice. nice. And it should be said, Peter, and I, I want to thank you for your YouTube channel. You, you've put so much cool stuff on there, both handsome and helmet related. 
it should be said too that you did join Helmet on stage in like 2018 uh, when they ran through Australia and played with them, which I thought was a cool thing. That must have been a nice. I think it was tw- like 10 years. It was like 2011. Yeah. Oh, was it? The, okay, sorry, yeah, it was longer ago. But but anyway, it's it it was nice to see that. You know, yeah. How did that How did that come about? Uh, well, Paige got in touch before the you know before the tour and said, "Yeah, we're coming along. We're coming down. We should get together." And my other half said, "Look, you know, it's time to." Bury the hatchet. Yeah. And it was. So we went down the Gold Coast. They were playing down the Gold Coast. We spent the afternoon with Paige, had something to eat, hung out at the beach. He met my family, met my kids. Um, and then, you know, I never played in Brisbane with Helmet. So that was just something I wanted to do just to yeah. take it off the list. That's cool. So, hometown. yeah, that's kind of cool that, he, you know, that it sounds like he reached out kind of saying, hey, this would be fun. And, uh, and good for both of you guys because you know sometimes sometimes these yeah, old and then, and then yep yeah, and then they came through again a few years later and I wasn't invited up so oh okay <laughs> <laughs> so well, that's that. let's continue the record with uh, it, it, okay. T, you mentioned it earlier I think this song was probably it probably was the track that really kind of hooked us in to the handsome album and that is the second track which is ride okay. down We don't use the word perfect a lot on Two Twins in an Album. This is one of those kind of perfect compositions. It's every section of this song runs together beautifully. You know, it's got a really, you know, it's got a a verse that demands your attention. Chorus opens up big. I love the middle section, the way that the the pounding kind of builds up. And then, of course, Pete's drumming stands out during a couple of those breaks. So, well, the outro is one of those songs you don't want it to end. Yeah. And you're kind of like that, that outro is so spastic and so cool. And then it's like, the album is so tight and none of the songs are too long or indulgent. That's one of the beauties of it. And this song, you could have added another minute and a half and all that you, you kind of like this, this album, you're constantly leaving the listener like wanting more, you know, which is what makes it such a progressive, easy, intriguing listen, start to finish, you know, which at this time, uh, the, the full package of the album, in most cases, wasn't done that well. There were a lot of good singles here and there. There were peaks and valleys. But to have something where you know the, the entire thing was tight and to the point and not indulged in any way, this was the same year of Be Here Now by Oasis. And that was probably the most indulgent rock album ever created. So the fact that you guys kept things straightforward i think is part of the charm and it's part of what makes this track i mean this track's exceptional this is perfectly produced and and written in a very clever creative way particularly the chorus and just just a really amazing song um i think for that one you you can thank tom capone for that one so uh tom had probably most of the song down when he brought it in he came up with the whole outro tom and i did sit down in his apartment on St. Mark's. And yeah, we spent some time orchestrating guitars. Um, I love the way two guitars can intertwine and you can layer all these um, upper order harmonics over the top of them. Who did you, were there other, were there uh, backup 
you know, vocalist uh, on when you would play this live or was it just Jeremy no, pretty much? Just Jeremy. Okay. Okay. Cause that chorus, there's obviously a lot going on, you know, with yeah, kind of call and answer and that type of thing. So like, was this tough to pull off live in that way? Uh, would have been for him, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you were fine. Yeah. If you watch the live video, if you watch a live performance of it T, he's, he's definitely working hard to achieve that yeah. chorus, but he does it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he finds kind of the different voices during yeah. that chorus. It works. Think, yeah, the only two live videos I've seen, there's one from the church, from the, the basement in uh, Philadelphia, which is pretty good. We sound good there. And the other one was from St. Louis. And that was horrible. Um, I don't know whether it was the mixing. I, I sh- certainly hope our mixer wasn't doing that to us every night. Um, well, yeah, the Philly one does. Is that, Was that the one with Silverchair, the... Um... Uh, Philadelphia was um, just a little hardcore all ages show with Orange Nine Millimeter. Ah, okay, yeah. Uh, the Silver Chair tour was good, and that we got up in front of a lot of people. Yeah, uh, but they were all fourteen year old girls. What was it like touring with guys that young? I mean, was it kind of cool, or did you guys like? I mean, I know they, no, were, they were big really, fans they were of really your nice. band. Uh, they were really nice. Apparently, Silver Chair were um, big Helmet fans. Maybe that's why we got the tour. Okay. Um, they were good, you know. That they they were so young at that point. Their mothers would come and chaperone them. Right. And when their mothers couldn't do it, their fathers would chaperone them on tour. <laughs> so I asked Daniel Johns. I said, "Well, how's it going? Are you having fun?" He said, "Oh, we have more fun when our dads are here." <laughs> <laughs> but they were, you know, they were great. I mean, God, they were doing so well. They were pulling crowds like you know, you're playing in front of six thousand people yeah. in. Toronto, you can't complain. Yeah. Even if they're yeah. all holding up cigarette lighters. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of the live shows, track three uh, to me stands uh, out as a live song. And a song that kind of grew on me over time in Love and the Album, and that is Going to Panic. so powerful and so adventurous rhythmically cut time double time back to cut time again just keeping the listener really engaged that's what i remember about this album at 17 hearing so much music in the 90s there was something just that really that really captured the attention rhythmically from this song and again i think the vocal effects are really strong here but where did peter i wanted to where did that do 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 that fast kind of riff where did that one come from uh, well, I think when we started that one, Eddie had this. Uh, yeah. That was just a little throwaway thing that we had to come up. We needed a bridge, so we just built something there. And the chorus. Something like that. Yeah. Um, I think we just cobbled that together, threw it in. Jeremy came up with the hook. Yeah. Um, which very, very good chorus. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. sings his ass off on this song live and in studio. I mean, he really lets it go on this one, but I think, you know, the hook is great, but this was the first moment to me that, that really, uh, to your earlier point, Peter, that the dual guitar thing, thing comes through. Cause there's a lot of complimentary things happening. There's sort of open kind of moves on one and then tight sort of choppy moves with the other. You guys did a great job on that, on this entire record, really a lot of complimentary stuff going on there where 
some of it's choppy dead note rhythmic some of it's kind of open obviously with the drop d stuff a lot of kind of moving up and down it's it's the 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 dual guitar assault on a song like going to panic is i think what makes it really really good yeah i think because you know a lot of helmet stuff seemed to be written for one guitar and there were two guitars in the band out of necessity because Paige at some point would be playing and he couldn't play the riff. So you had the other guy, you know, the other guy doing that. Look here, we're definitely writing for two guitars. Yeah. Yeah. And really enjoying it. Probably one of the emotional peaks on the album for me, track four, Left of Heaven. Just love both riffs that drive the song, but that one right there would win. And I'm assuming that that's kind of what what drove the song along originally. Yeah, I can't I can't remember who came up with that, um, either Eddie or I. But yeah, that riff came about then. But it was written for one guitar. And all those open strings. That, that one was pretty much done. Uh, it just needed a good vocal. And uh, so that was all Jeremy's work there with the vocal. And yeah, good good harmonies from him too. So I like that. It's a hell, it's a hell of a track. I remember, you know, you, you get to ride down. That was a moment. But also you get to this because you keep, like, like I said earlier with track three a little bit, like you keep waiting for it to kind of like level off and it just keeps coming at you, you know, and like you're at track four here and like your head's still spinning in a, in a wonderful way, you know? Track five, which honestly in 2022 is probably my favorite on the album, and that is Thrown Away. I mean, all five it's of so you. good. God, like it, this is 25 years I've been listening to this route. Every like, even just that clip, it's like, God damn, this is so good. It's new each time. It's and I, I think a lot of it is all those five har- of you. those harmonics. Like, yep. oh my God, what a great layer. All five of you are just at peak on this song, and and even lyrically, again, just when when he's singing, we are built upon false foundations. I'm just like, I'm all in. It's like, yes, like (laughs) (laughs) misplaced expectations, like perfect marriage of words and music and everything works on this song, man. I wish we we had appreciated Jeremy more at the time. Um, Much more. He deserves it. That just started, I think we're just sitting around with an acoustic guitar at home. Again, it's just dropped day. Um, just like that chord, it sounded kind of big. And it's such a great progression. Yeah. Do you remember how the harmonics came about? Because, man, that really makes for a neat layer. Yeah, I do. Um, so Tom Capone had this thing, I can't do it at all, where it came time for him to record his solo for that song in Seattle. I think you've been doing it in quicksand too. But, yeah, no, everyone was very aware of it. You know what? He did use a lot of artificial harmonics i remember on the manic compression album it's full of those you know so i think you're right he's yeah that was a trademark of his sound well track six i i have to think that epic records was excited about track six because uh it does feel like 
the obvious sort of single. It's a song that grew on me a little bit over time. It wasn't my favorite when I first heard the album, but it seems like this one had some commercial promise, and that is Dim Lights. probably just the most straightforward pop structure i would say uh at least it feels like that to me was this was this written with any of that in mind peter i know bands artists rarely like to say that but it does seem like this song is pretty straightforward no um it was written i wrote it in an open g tuning i think in one sitting from beginning to end after listening to a lot of frank black i was listening to abstract plane and this came this just came from abstract plane that's all. It was just a throwaway song. There was nothing, nothing special about it. Um, I guess Epic liked it. They, they went ahead. Um, I guess they didn't hear a single, so they had us re-record it with Michael Beinhorn in New York. Hmm. Uh, but there was a version of that floating around. I don't know if it's that much different. It's probably a bit cleaner. But recording with Michael Beinhorn was pretty good. It was a good experience. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. Well, Pete Hines was terrified because when he went in, he said, oh, no, you know, I'm going to do this. And then I, I can't play to a fucking click. And Bynod's going to fucking fire me. He's going to have my <laughs> ass out of there. And then he's going to give him some fucking session guy. So Hines was completely freaked out about it. Um, <laughs> he had an amazing setup for the drums. So he sets the drums up in a room with PA subs either, monstrous PA subs either side of the drums, just to fatten up the bottom end. So Hines enjoyed that. I enjoyed it because um, – Michael Beinhorn expected me to blow a lot of speakers. I used one of my favorite cabinets. So he bought eight eight greenbacks, like real, real greenbacks. And at the end of the recording, I hadn't blown anything. So I asked him, what, what are you going to do with those? He said, oh, you paid for them. Take them if you want. So I took those home. Um, we did struggle with the vocals for a bit. Look, Eddie was really critical of, of Jeremy's vocals, unfortunately. So Jeremy always had a hard time doing them, whether that was in Seattle or whether it was in, in New York with Michael. Did he did he want something with more sort of gruff to it? And was that kind of the, the key criticism? I think, was I think that was probably the, the, the key. Yeah. And you know, I don't know if maybe there. he's I don't know if if he's you'd know better than us if he's changed his thoughts on that. But the dichotomy of this really aggressive, hard charging nature and this soft at times vocal that hits the melodies and sort of nails and it's not like he's you know being tentative yeah, it's just I mean, a little lighter i think that that actually is part of what makes this really work since then i've read a couple of reviews where people like guitar world or something reviewed the album it was one of the 10 top 10 un, unrecognized or undiscovered records where they said mm-hmm. the stroke of brilliance was having jeremy coming and do the, the vocals so i i have to agree i agree i do too i'm surprised and um I think that's fantastic. It's great. That's good. Yeah. It was a different time back then, right? I mean, there was a different sort of vibe with what vocalists were bringing to the table and how they were complementing this kind of music, this sort of drop D attack. But yeah, part of the 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 duality of of the whole thing is I think what 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 makes it special over time. So that, that's actually good that that's been recognized critically in some circles too. Because, you know, most of the guys that were, were singing them were, you know, somewhat tough guys. We, we, right. We talked with the Deftones, right. uh, Orange 9mm. Um, all those guys were all, you know, they were all macho singers. Right. 
it is time to flip the record to side two. The way that was sequenced for vinyl, side two does kick off with Lead Bellied. Big old thick drop D riff, and then you create those spaces where there's the little guitar interludes, kind of the drum fills. Really clever song. Good way to kick off side two. Great space. Yep. Yeah, pretty sure Eddie started this one with uh and then we we had a lot of fun just swapping off with Pete Hines with all the drum fills. And another one that makes this album go from just something we like to something special, and that is track eight, My Mind's Eye. It was like basically impossible to grab the right 20 seconds from the song. I know. You know, it's like, you know, it was a, that was a, that was a chore on this one. Well, the chorus is so epic, but I, I do want to just touch real quick on the intro yeah. because th- that's, a, that was a significant thing in 1997 within the context of this album, as you're taking the journey to hear this sort of synthesizer thing come in, it was a kind of hitch over the head. It wasn't a synthesizer. It was just a, a guitar with a reverse, couple of reverse reverbs. Oh, okay. So it was right. more of a sort of my bloody Valentine mm-hmm. idea, if you like. Um, we'd gone to a guitar store out in Seattle, and I'm pretty sure that Tom bought a Mutron. Okay. So I was using a couple of reverse uh, reverbs, and he was using a Mutron. So it was probably a combination of those. Um, nice. It was a nice build. And that song, again, you can thank... Uh, thank Tom Capone for that one. I remember when Tom brought it in. You know, he brought in two songs, and they were going, they were you know, ride down and my mind's eye. Yeah, and they were great. Everyone loved yeah. them. So, and with Tom's songs, he had fairly fairly complete arrangements when he brought them in. So that they were just really easy to do. Then it was just a matter of working out how we were going to voice them. I'm not sure if you're going to think this is cool or not, but um, we were. This was uh, we were juniors in high school, and we were. Um, we were on the basketball team and we did a highlights video at the end of the season. And we introed the highlights video with the intro to my mind's eye. And then when everything busts in, that was when we like showed the team run out. So, you know, if nothing else, you made our high school highlight video where my mind's eye was basically the featured, you know, we had track. No so there you go. Gonna, uh, thank you. We had no idea that was <laughs> going to happen from where we were sitting. We thought no one, Bought the album. No one liked it. <laughs> or if they did buy the album, they didn't like the album. They told the friends not to buy it. We well, that- I had like parents <laughs> coming up to was- me, like like we went to like this sort of conservative like Christian high school, and I had parents coming up to me being like, "What was that song you?" Yeah, like, I, I remember. It was like, "Oh, you just wait." You is like, "You really want to hear this?" You know, that's worship music. What are you right? So for the next three guys, let, let's just kind of do those in a group here because it takes you to the end. And we certainly want to talk about swimming, waiting, quiet liar and Eden complex. So T, why don't we run just a clip for waiting real quick? And then that's followed by track 10, which is quiet liar. 
And then this sort of run of three is complete with track 11, Eden Complex. <laughs> Peter, any highlights from that trio of, of heaviness as we get toward the end of the album? Uh, waiting. I don't know. It's just a pop song, wasn't it? Um, not a lot going on there. Quiet Liar. You know, that started again. That started with Eddie's bass line, and he and I worked that one out together. Um, Eden Complex, that was very much of a – it came from the time when Mark Stanley was in the band. Oh. So – but that would mark the direction that we probably would have gone on, gone in if Mark had stayed in the band. Um, I like it. It was dissonant. It was a bit, you know, it's fun to play. I liked all those bum notes. They worked. They're great. So the album concludes with swimming. I've been interested in talking about this one. Peter, I want to show my handsome street cred. So I, I've got the sub pop. Yeah. The cool. sub pop single. So this is one sort of version of swimming. And then you have the, what concludes the album, but We'll listen to a clip, but I, I did want to ask you because something about this song sounds different and I, I, it does sound like it was recorded differently and produced differently and everything else. So let's run the clip to you, but okay. we'll conclude with talking about swimming. So Maestro, great job on the clip because that that that's the pinnacle of the song, right? This big kind of conclusion bridge section that has these blaring glaring guitars. Uh, Peter, tell me about swimming and this, is it accurate? This wasn't recorded at the same time as everything else. Yeah, so that's the same version as the sub pop version. So we did try record it, re-record it out at Seattle, but um, probably Terry Date said, "Yeah, look, it, it doesn't sound the same. It's missing something." So the version that you've got there, uh, the sub pop version we recorded in Williamsburg. I can't remember the name of the studio, but it was done as a four piece, and uh, the guitar sound was was much cleaner. I, I think we remixed it out at Seattle, but the re recording lost something in translation. The thing I notice is just the the vocal effect. It's I think it's the only moment where um, Jeremy's basically just has a clean you know, direct voice to microphone sounding, um, which is great. I, you know, and I don't know if that was intentional, but it's kind of cool for the last, I think it's, I think it's a really special track to be honest. I do too. I love it. And it's kind of neat the way it wraps up the album with something that does take you a little bit in it. I mean, it's still you guys. It's not like, it's not like it's out of place, but it's definitely like very stripped down and, that's cool that you guys, you know, you, you go into the big fancy studio and you, you know, you get all this lushness and layerness opportunity, but, but all of you kind of look at each other and say, nah, like this stripped down version, just the four piece with a little bit thinner production actually works. And, and I think that's awesome that you kind of just left it. Right. Yeah. I think that also happened live. So when Tom Capone was playing with us live, um, you know, we had it figured out. We were, it sounded good. We had our, everything was balanced. Everything, the frequency spectrum was divided up fairly. Everything had its place. I think swimming is just more indicative of how we sounded as a four piece. Yeah. 
We were fine as a four-piece. We were better with Tom, but we could have probably kept going as a four-piece quite happily. Hmm. Right. I should have probably just got my shit together and taken some lessons and stopped being such a dick. <laughs> you do because you you know you're in a band and you wander around you go you know i'm good i'm pretty right. good right. i don't need to learn anything what do you mean i need to take lessons um right. all the stuff that i've got to do nowadays you know all the stuff these kids want to play they yeah. all want to shred they all want to play like dimebag daryl they want to be kirk hammett honestly if you play that stuff in the east village anywhere between 91 or any any time between the 80s and forever you know, the audience would have just sat, stood there looking like they stepped in dog shit with a hole in their shoe. Right. It just wasn't done. It was poor taste. I saw one band play at Brownies. They came from L.A. The guitar player decided to rip off a little bit of a solo and impress everyone, and everyone just turned their noses up. What the fuck yeah. is that? What was he doing? Yeah. It That belonged out in the suburbs. It did not belong in the East Village. Um, we, we, we toured at the end of the tour, the touring cycle, um, Jeremy and Hines decided they couldn't stand to be around each other anymore. Yeah. Um, but they were roommates. They lived in the same place in Park Slope. So even if they broke up and left the band, they'd still go back to the same apartment afterwards. We had a three-record firm deal. And, and what most labels were doing then was they, they would build in a leaving member clause so that if even one signatory to the contract left, they could void the entire contract. So when Hines left... Um, that's what they did. And it wasn't just us. Happened to a lot. Oh, yeah. No, I know that common tale oh, yeah. for sure. For sure. Peter, we, we cannot thank you enough for taking the time out and just yeah. talking about this album that means so much to us. We just want to give you one more opportunity for any final kind of reflections. What's it like to go through it again? I'm always curious about that, you know, and hear all these tracks again and any kind of final feedback or reflections you have for us about this, yeah, this really um, important album. I'm really... Um, gratified that people like it. We had no idea, no idea that anyone had even noticed. Um, for me personally, I'm really glad that we got to do the album. I had, you know, for despite the ups and downs, I had a fantastic time working with, with Nappy, with Capone, with Hines, with Jeremy. Um, it was fun. It was fun. It was probably it was different than Helmet, but it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was pretty serious at times. It was pretty silly. So, that show that um, you had on video from St. Louis, like the audio, everything was horrible about it. But what was good about that night was that our sound man tour manager had a few too many drinks. So the next morning, Heinz, Jeremy and I went into his hotel room and told him he was in deep shit. He said, what, what, what do you mean? He said, well, the van's gone. The van, the gear, everything's gone. So what do you mean the van's gone? Yeah, well, they found it in the river. It's in the fucking river. So what do you mean it's in the river? So well, you were in here with those two girls. What girls? Those two underage girls. We got photos of them with their hands down your pants. Well, we had a poor tour manager in tears. He was crying. Oh, that's was, great. You know, just moments like that, they're priceless. That's really. the stuff you remember, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's no, great. No, I'm glad. I'm, I'm amazed that people like the record. Really appreciate that people do. Um, I'm sure that the other guys in the band would be you know, similarly very grateful. And again, personally, I'm just really happy that we did it because if mean time had been the full stop of my musical career, probably wouldn't have felt very good about it. But this, I feel great about. I can listen to it. I can still listen to it. And I still, it's still just, yeah, 
makes me happy. Listening you to should. It. It's you should. It's special, and the way it holds up uh, in 2022 is pretty remarkable. There aren't a lot of records that came out at this time that were sort of taking on. I mean, I, I hesitate to even lump it in with with kind of the overall drop D style because it is so unique. But um, but for most of them do not still hold up this well. And it's, it's still a phenomenal listen. I think I've heard people say maybe it was pre emo. I don't, I don't know. Is that a good thing? In in this case, I think it is. Yeah. (laughs) If you're talking about sunny day, real estate emo. Yes. If you're talking about my chemical romance, emo, probably not. Yeah, exactly. But thank you so much for joining us. Peter, one last question I got to ask in one of your videos, uh, teaching videos, you had a handsome shirt on and I was like, Oh damn, would I give anything (laughs) for a handsome shirt? You you don't have a big box of those somewhere. (laughs) We'll pay a big number. I'll pay a if big you number for it. Around. Exactly. <laughs> no, look, I'll send you a link. Um, there were two reissues of the Handsome album. So it was the, the Shop Radio cast, but there was also another one out of LA. And I think they, they did some merchandise too. So oh, nice. I have hey. to go back through my emails, but I'll find a. If you could, we'll both get it and we'll both get one and wear it proudly. But thanks so much, Peter, and have a great rest of your morning. We could say that now that evening is setting in here in Detroit, Michigan, but. Okay. Uh, have a great rest of your morning and we cannot thank you enough. Thanks above all for the music and everything you've done uh, to give us this great experience with this amazing album. So thank you. Thank you for even, thank you for caring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, T the, uh, the old podcast continues to deliver these uh, really unique experiences. And that was certainly one of them, wasn't it? Well, thank you for lining that up. That was incredibly cool and not just going through an album that we love which obviously you know is the point but learning about what it was like and the lack of glamour you know plowing through the the music business and the music industry around that time i thought that was one of the most interesting things you know hearing from peter was you know you see and we we talked about it on the pod you see the glamour, you see the on stage, you see the running around, you see the, the probably the easiest part of the whole thing, which is the performance and vibing with the crowd and all those things that you look at from afar and say, wow, that must be incredible, an incredible life. Um, but getting a glimpse into what's sort of behind the curtain, you know, which we've, we've gotten that a couple of times with guests, but this was probably the best glimpse of that we've gotten with Peter. It was, it was pretty it was pretty amazing. Very interesting. You know, people think the music business is, you know, Taylor Swift and maybe it's a bad example now, but Katy Perry and, you know, Harry Styles, let's put it that way. Yeah. That makes up 5% of the music business. Stars like that, that receive that kind of treatment and that have traveled that kind of road. Most of the music industry is Peter Mangiti. It's, it's people that grind and yeah. grind and grind and then just find their place and then hope it's sustainable. And when it's not, then they grind again or they reinvent or so. Yeah, I, I think it was, uh, he took us to school a little bit and I yeah. like that. I think that's it was, cool. It was awesome. Definitely. So, uh, and what an album, good Lord. I mean, hopefully, you know, part of the, I'm sure a lot of people will see the name of the episode and say, what the hell is that? But, you know, part of uh, what we've tried to do on a few of these episodes is get you to listen to something you hadn't heard before. Hopefully that happens a bit. Yeah, good call. I mean, we don't want to take away from all the things that we got to hear from him and learn from him. 
do not want to take away the point of the episode, which is to do what you and I have tried to do for 25 years, which is expose everyone we know to this, to this really outstanding album. And it certainly is. I'm going to actually miss not being able to listen to it every day. Like I have for the last week, you know? Well, you can still do that, buddy. That's the the beauty of it now. Well, you mentioned it during round and round that uh, the new releases have been pouring in. So I, I got to clear up a little bit of uh, equity, a little dry powder for, uh, for that kind of time to to listen to those. But uh, it was great, man. It was fun to do that together too. a special experience for you and I, for now, that really means a lot to us. So thanks again, Peter, for joining us at T let's, uh, you know, let's, Wind things to a close here, and uh, I want to hear what's in your head. In your head, in your head. T three songs. What do you got? Well, this is kind of funny. One of these happened yesterday, so uh, so it's summertime, and I, I drive a. I'm a Jeep guy now. Okay, I do the Jeep wave. You know, that's that's I'm 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 a Jeep guy. All right, you're in the Jeep cult. It's actually gladly. It's it's actually a gladiator. So. It's kind of, I mean, it's a Jeep, but it's got like a truck bed, you know, whatever. Uh, but I still get the wave. I still get the respect from the Jeep community, even though it's not like a true, you know, Cherokee or whatever. Right. So I took the, it's summer. So I take the doors off the Jeep. I take the top off. It's, it's, I turn it into a real Jeep. Right. And, you know, every now and again, you'll just get like the perfect song at the perfect moment. And it just goes, it just cranks up. Right. And, uh, this sounds kind of stupid because it's such a anthem classic, but Van Halen jump came on and it was just the perfect, like the sun was shining. It was just a perfect kind of moment. I listened to that song start to finish probably for the first time in years, start to finish. And it's a perfect song. It's an unbelievable song. The, the synth, the middle section guitar solo, the outro with the guitar chop, like the the pre-chorus like it's just so good you know it's like and sometimes these songs it's like oh like i've heard it two thousand times but you still want to take those moments to appreciate it i was driving by the music shop you know our, our buddy sean over at celine music and vinyl you know hey sean good friend of the show that's right he great friend of the show i was driving by there and i actually stopped He's next to the dry cleaner. So I had to go there, but, but I, <laughs> and popped. he's a gigantic Van Halen fan. That's his favorite band of all time. He's got the tat. He's got the, the, yeah. the Van Halen tat. And it was just awesome. And, and I literally popped into the shop just to tell him that I had just completed the four minutes, whatever it is of jump. And that I declared it a perfect song. And there are these other two people in the shop shopping for records and they're like, yeah, we agree. It was great. It turned into this whole, but <laughs> I, I felt compelled to pop in to see him, the, the Van Halen, you know, uh, aficionado and declare that, you know, after further review, uh, 40 years almost later, I think it's a perfect song. So anyway, Van Halen jump. I think it's the best re-entrance into a final chorus ever from the do 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 that synth part yeah do do and then alex does a shh on the symbols and then right back alex, on the keyboards alex's drum tone is so ridiculous i mean on that whole album but on that song in particular are those triggers or is that his roto kind of setup there's certainly heavy production i would say triggers it's hard to okay. say because the drum trigger is an actual piece of hardware that who knows whether he uses those or not, but yeah, the, the, 
the, the most ridiculous is on OU812. I don't know if that's an album that you're really into or not. Right. I know the singles you probably dig. Right. But it's they, they sound so fake on that album. But they but it's Alex. It's his tone, right? So yeah. But a lot right. of it's his playing. He plays really hard. And it's so, you know, you got to give it give it to him for sure. But yeah, there was Ted Templeman was doing something. Yeah. <laughs> the drops. Well, it's a I mean, what a what a great summer song. And just, I don't know, hit me at the perfect time. Secondly, so so Nub, um, you know the great Robert Palmer, right? Um, and when My he got Robert Palmer tape. And when <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bateman, nice. And when he got into his uh, you know, his uh, shirt and tie with the girls behind him phase, right? Which is so when you get to know Robert Palmer like his sense of humor and all that, you realize that that whole thing was kind of a bit and it's funny. Yes. Yeah. And at the time, I mean, we were young. You didn't really realize that, but funny. Anyway, he's, he had this hit song called, I didn't mean to turn you on. You know that <laughs> yeah. one? Yeah. <laughs> Which is, but that was a cover. Did you know that? I did. Yeah. Well, it's by this R and B group called Sherelle. So I was like, all right, it's track two, and uh, you know, and so I'm, so I'm just gonna pick up the Sherelle. So they were the originators of the song. I didn't mean to turn you on, and uh, I mean, it's kind of the same without with a female voice. It was from a female perspective, and it doesn't have the big synthy uh, backbeat, right? Yeah, that, that's the real difference that I remember. It's it's definitely more more sort of R and B, right? Yeah. But uh, you know, hey, pretty interesting. Uh, so anyway, that one. I guess by both artists technically, but the, the Shirelle version was uh, of interest to me. And then the third is this really cool song. It's um, it's a little festival Rocky, but you know that sometimes I'm a little soft on that to, to some capacity. And it's by this band called small black. And the song is called breathless and it's worth checking out. Even if you're like nubs, not really into the 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 festival rockish sound. It's a every so often that genre does come out with a track that's pretty good. And uh, "Breathless" by Small Black is a good tune. Hey, as long as you can dance to it, you know, it's got to be Dan- danceable. Everything danceable. today, just yeah. make sure you can dance to it, man. Got to be able and to turn sh- your phone around and take a picture. Yeah, that's right. You got to be able to shake your shake your parts and and also film yourself while you shake your parts. That's what that's what the kids are doing now. Can you imagine being at a show, some of the shows we were at that we've gushed about and like standing there with your phone up in the air? Like, I mean, we were like actually enjoying, I mean, I'm going to sound super old again, but we were like kind of enjoying the show, which I still do even today. And like uh, uh, people are taking videos of the band and of themselves and of the crowd and of the turning around and showing everyone the showing people the balcony. I mean, it's just. Isn't it kind of stupid? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. So, so last week we talked about it on the Enya episode, but I, you know, I went to that show in Vegas, the Bruno Mars thing. And they, as I mentioned last week, they took away your phones when you walk in Uh and it was, I mean, it, it was a game changer. So if you want to hear. And Tool has done that. They, they actually kick people out of the show for producing their phone. Yeah. So if you want to hear my whole like, you know, rant about that, go back to the Enya episode last week. I'll, I'll talk about it because it's, you know, I talk about how I thought the show was going to be one thing and it was another and blah, blah, blah. 
But uh, yeah, it changed the whole experience. The fact that they took your phones away at the, uh, they didn't take them away. They gave you this bag. I'll you know, check out the episode if you want to hear it. Well, that that's a good uh, in your head. T. Yeah. What's good. yours? What's your in your head, buddy? So summer music for sure on the way. So oh, yeah. I've got uh, sticks with light up, you know, one of their early kind of upbeat numbers. Uh, it's, it's all about uh, smoking um, uh, grass. The Garncha. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, the f- tribute to that, but really it's just kind of a catchy, fun pop song. Fooling uh, around that- on the course, smoking grass, <laughs> yeah. poor caddying. Poor caddying. Exactly. Exactly. Second, I've got uh, another good summer song, which is Starship. We built this city. Man, I think Starship just gets a bad rap. And Jefferson Starship gets a sort of bad rap. The actual Starship incarnation gets a really bad rap. I love that stuff, man. Well, actually I was, uh, I was, I was cleaning the garage yesterday and uh, it's not enough came on by Starship, which was kind of a yeah. secondary hit, but great tune. Really good tune. Yeah, no doubt, man. No doubt. And uh, then we have uh, Metallica with hero of the day from load getting a new appreciation for load and reload. They put out that black album box that I, I wonder if they're going to stop there or if they're going to do box sets for load and reload. Oh God. Insane of course they will, you know, yeah. $300 a pop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly well, right. Exactly. Those guys, well, those, those guys have never stopped on the, uh, you know, Metallica is uh, not afraid to be profitable and, and good for them. No doubt about it. See, no doubt about it. So everybody right now needs to go to their, uh, local record shop and or online uh, discogs or something and buy the handsome album from 1997, buy it on CD. There's a vinyl reissue if you want to check it out and uh, listen to it top to bottom. And you too will be a convert. And that's what this episode was all about was converting all of you. So we want to thank all of you for listening and tuning in and supporting us. Check us out on all the major podcast platforms. Leave us feedback Leave us comments, make a request. It's probably about time we do another request episode, T. I think we're kind of due for that. And above all, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you next week, or I guess in two weeks, or maybe in three weeks, or maybe in four weeks for the next edition of Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins and an Album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.